Early in my career as a curator of contemporary Native art and photography, I spent a lot of time looking at archival photographs of Native people held captive in forts or posed in portrait studios for postcards or photographs when Native people would go to Washington, D.C. to negotiate treaties. And some of those photographs, I think the one that sits with me the longest is a photo of a man who's waiting his execution at Fort Snelling. And he looks so pensive. He was going to be executed for stealing cows for his starving family. This was a time when some Native people were put on reservations, smaller lands, but then non-Indians kept encroaching on those lands or crooked administrators were taking a cut of the food that was supposed to go to Native families, and so they were starving. And so the families were forced to steal livestock. He stays with me because I think about he was at the juncture of his death. It was just a matter of days before he was hung. I would have to think, he's thinking about what is happening to this world, what is happening to my children, what will my grandchildren know? So I think about that, is his death all for naught? And the treaties that were made, the negotiations that were made, were they all for naught? must have been so beautiful before these people kicked us out. <laughs> we used to be full of the devil. We'd throw the chickens in the bay and we rode all the calves that they could, <laughs> we could find. I just tromped all over them hills. I knew every rabbit hole and everything else that was out there. It was all an adventure. I never heard Mom refer to the cove as Laird's Landing. What did they call it? The cove. The Cove. The Cove. Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast, located on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok peoples in present-day Marin County. I'm Adam Lofton. This special three-part series is about these Coast Miwok lands and the multi-generational story of a family and the Cove that was likely inhabited for millennia by their Coast Miwok ancestors but this is also a story about the indigenous peoples of California and the continuous erasure of their cultures, peoples, places, and memories. On March 20th, 1901, a San Francisco newspaper printed an article with the headline, Coast Indians at a love feast. Tribesmen gather in numbers on the beach at Tamales. The article claims that Coast Miwok people have made an annual journey to the bay as far back as memory goes, and that this year they arrived in numbers not seen in a decade. It describes a week of games, feasts, and dances, and states, and I quote, pleasure-seeking aborigines forgot that they were but the scattered remnant of a disappearing race. A man, thought to be more than 100 years old, 
who had traveled nearly 50 miles from Cloverdale, was said to have spent the entire time atop a shell mound, wailing and chanting for his ancestors. A different newspaper, reporting on the same event, focused on the local economic impact of the gathering, stating, as clam diggers have been attending the dance for three days and three nights, Tamales Bay clams are a very scarce article in the market. In his recent book, The Archaeology of Refuge and Recourse, Coast Miwok archaeologist Sim D. Schneider writes that this event may have taken place at Laird's Landing, which is the site of Teresa's family's homestead. Despite the racism and cultural bias present in articles like these, they are important sources that chronicle a cultural phenomenon that was underway. And as Schneider states in his book, indigenous communities continued to engage with the lands and waters that pertain to them. They maintained a cultural identity distinct from the outside world. And they also continued to pursue livelihoods and a sense of relevance as California's colonial era extended further into a second century. More than a century after that gathering, on a sunny July afternoon, Teresa, Tiger, and her first cousin Arlene de la Husse, who grew up on Tamales Bay, but now lives in San Francisco, set out on a boat trip to the Felix Family Cove. Together, they wanted to experience their mother's perspective of arriving at their home from the water. Oh, this feels great. You love the wind? I love the wind, love the water. Hey, Ray. Good to see you. Hi. This is Arlene. Hi. Arlene. Hi. Nice meeting you. you. Hello. Teresa. Teresa, nice to meet you. Pleasure. Hey. Tiger. Tiger. Tiger, pleasure. Rit. Yeah, welcome, welcome aboard. Hey, Wit, what do you think is the best place for us to be? Kind of a work boat, you know, so there's yeah, cool. not a whole lot of That's places right. to sit. But um, no, this is all all the better because our family fished and lived on this bay, so so this is this is cool. <laughs> yeah, When I contacted my friend Whit Strain and asked for a ride in his boat to visit the cove, he happily agreed. Whit's family has lived in West Marin since the 1850s and it's been farming oysters in Tamales Bay for over 30 years. After a full day waist deep in the bay gathering oysters, Whit quickly loaded us into his oyster boat. Arlene, do you want to sit up here in the front? Yeah, I'll sit up here. Mm -hmm. Are you going to sit here too? Yeah. Can I sit on the side? Please. Are we all set? Yeah, I think so. My yeah. jackets are in the, the cubby there. Okay. I'll hang on to you, you hang on to me. Okay. Um. Don't hang on to me. <laughs> no, okay. I'm a, good, I'm, I'm a swimmer. <laughs> I can float. That's one thing, my one talent. Even when I was a kid, my mom would just like crack up because I'd jump off the high dive and just pop up like a cork. I have never floated well. Yeah. Me neither. I have trouble floating. I can swim, but I can't float. Yeah, I'm with you, Tiger. It was an amazing day to be on a boat. It was a beautiful sunny day. The bay was pretty calm. And my cousin Arlene was just so happy and so at home. 
Like Wit, Arlene's family was in the oyster business. Though Arlene moved away from the bay after high school, her sister, Virginia Jensen, owned and operated Jensen's Oysters for over 30 years in the nearby town of Hamlet. After struggling to maintain her oyster farm and restaurant due to a series of bad storms that washed away her oyster beds, Virginia sold her 40-acre property to the Point Reyes National Seashore in 1988. When she sold the property, she said that the Park Service promised to preserve it and protect it from vandalism. But in November of 2003, the buildings of Hamlet were demolished. Representatives at the park denied ever knowing of such an arrangement with Virginia and her family. I can't help but hear echoes of Felix Cove in this story. As we slowly make our way to the cove, I wonder if Wit and Teresa's families would have known each other had they been able to stay on the bay. Teresa, will you describe what's happening right now? Well, we're in the boat and we're coming up ashore at uh, Felix Cove. We can see the shed that our great-great-grandpa, Joe Felix, and his brother built in the house that Joe Felix and his brother built. And then we can see the newly renovated, uh, rebuilt um, cabin that our grandpa Campili built um, for my mom's brothers. Uncle Vic, Uncle Gene, and Uncle Frankie would stay there when they would come out to the house. So now we're just coming straight up to the beach, the same beach that they would come in with their supplies. Where our mothers played and our cousin played and we got graffiti going on all over there. Yeah, the taggers, tag buildings all over the park. As you can see the new roof, the new wood. Uh -huh. But this is so much different than the pictures that we see that we have yeah. because there's so much brush and overgrowth that um, it looks totally different. Floating up here, I was thinking about the dog houses, the sheds, the chicken coops. There would be someone on the beach, maybe. There'd be activity, there'd be dogs everywhere. Arlene was just, she just had this inner beauty and outward beauty. I was taking a lot of pictures of her because it was a moment to be remembered and a moment to be shared. And I know that she talks about the cove as her home to see her go home by water was so meaningful because that's how our family traveled home. So now we're looking at a picture of my mom and your mom. Mm -hmm. My mom looks like she's about four. Maybe eight, I don't know what the age difference is. My mom was born in 25. Okay, there's four years because mine was born in 21. So they're the closest. Mm -hmm. And I think hearing what they had to endure as children, going to school with the rancher children, you know, being teased about the clothing that they wore and stuff. Um, and I know to realize that some of these rancher children that they went to school with, I went to school with their children. I never really thought about that before. What have your kids' reactions been when you brought them out here? They love it out here. 
my youngest one actually decided that he was going to get married at Heart's Desire Beach, and that's what he did. And it was just a couple of us, but that's what he wanted to do. And so, yeah, that meant a lot to me. It's like, wow, okay, we can do that. You know, this is home. I live in South San Francisco, and I worked in the financial district for over 40 years, and I take part. On a clear day, you can see Point Reyes. When I could see it, it's like, this is home. That's that's my home over there. And I, I still do that. You know, I just take a day and go up on the hill by the by the ocean and look out. Yeah, this is the place where you center from in the Bay Area, huh? Right. It's always in your sights. They can take you out of your home, but you can't take the home out of you. What kind of feelings are brought up when you come out here? Um, I get emotional. So, this is home to me. It's where I grew up. Not right here, but in this area. Yeah, I imagine you both might have grown up out here. Yeah. If things gone differently. Yeah, if things had gone differently, maybe this house would have been built out, maybe by us, and maybe we would have brought in someone to grade that road. We would probably have a picnic table out here, and we'd have a garden. Somebody from the family would still be living here. And this is probably where we would come for Christmas or Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. birthday parties. We would know how to row. We would have that muscle memory of rowing, muscle memory of going out and fishing and doing all that. Maybe our family would have sold out too and taken payment when the park took over. I don't know. I don't think so. It would have been nice to think that we would have the opportunity to make that decision. Um, but I would hope that we would have kept it and we would have been a carve out just like those homes that we saw as we boated right. in. We saw all those nice homes along the bay. Why is it so difficult to restore this when you see these other homes down on the other coast that weren't there before? Nice homes built. Yeah. You know, but... There's an imbalance. That's what we're working towards trying to address. And we know that some of the ranches are getting work done. B Ranch is supposedly getting a reconstructed barn. So there isn't transparency about what happens here at the park, which dwellings get maintained or restored. Mm -hmm. So it, I feel like we always have to keep pressure. We always have to keep knocking on the door, asking for attention, asking for resources. The fate of the Felix family homestead has remained in jeopardy since their eviction in 1956. Beyond the verbal agreement between the superintendent of Point Reyes National Seashore, Craig Kenkel, and Teresa that these buildings will not be demolished, she has no guarantees that these structures will continue to be protected. There has been progress in recognizing the sovereignty and history of Coast Miwok people. And on August 9, 2021, a general agreement for a government-to-government -government partnership was signed 
between the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria and the U.S. Department of the Interior, and specifically includes the Point Reyes National Seashore. Currently, this 20-year general agreement of a managing partnership is believed to be the only one of its kind in the country, and will focus on the designations of Native American traditional cultural properties eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places, and ensure tribal views and traditional ecological knowledge are part of the management of the ranching lands in the park. While this could lead to the long-term protection of Teresa's family homestead, her and her family's efforts to have a seat at the table are currently stalled. Her mission continues to be a grassroots effort, creating partnerships throughout Marin County and beyond, inviting the community to be a part of protecting the cove. There is still no signage at the home indicating its history, detailing the restoration process, or stating its significance on the bay. Teresa has been asking people who visit the home to leave shell messages on the porch each time they visit, an informal protection that humanizes her family's home. What was the first time that mom took you down to the cove? Well, the first time was to visit grandpa. I was probably four. So right, yeah. right after they adopted you. Right, right. You know, it might have been the first time that I met grandpa. And what was he like when you first saw him? Um, he was quiet. He was sitting like in the corner of the room. I remember the room like I was in it yesterday. It was neat, very basic. It didn't have a lot of furniture in it. It had a horsehair sofa, which I loved. It was neat. I mean, it was um, very 19th century, you know? And I remember that there was another room and there was a bed and that's where grandpa slept. Um, and then at one point I needed to go to the bathroom and there was an outhouse and mom wouldn't let me go out there by myself. And have you ever used an outhouse before? No. Was it scary? <laughs> no. I, you know, I, thinking back on it, the whole experience was a little scary. It was outside of my comfort zone as, you know, a four-year-old child. She was actually scared to have me go near the water, so that was scary. And then we actually went over to Marshall Beach, but we must have stayed too long because I remember it was like late afternoon. And when we were going back, she was really very anxious about getting back. And she said, you know, you better hurry up because the monster's gonna get us, the monster's gonna get us. I didn't know what she was talking about, you know? But, you know, looking back on it, it's like, well, the tide was coming in. That's what she was referring to as the monster. That's why she was running. If Uncle Vic and Grandpa weren't evicted, how do you think our life would have been different? 
Well, definitely it had the effect of cutting, you know, our generation um, out of the loop in terms of the history of the property and our family, you know. It's really important to have that connection. And I think that's what we were deprived of. I mean, when we first went there with Dewey, it was this odd experience of the unfamiliar for me, mm -hmm. that it was something that was so familiar and was our mom's home. And then I'm coming, we were coming back as visitors with the permission of the National Park Service. Yeah. Um, as visitors. And I think now as I have been going out, Tiger and I have been going out a lot, Mm -hmm. that now I, I have developed a relationship with it mm -hmm. that I didn't have a year ago. You know, that first time we sat there with Dewey, you know, I remember feeling very odd, quite frankly, about the fact that, um, you know, this was our mother's home and it, <laughs> it was under the ownership of the federal government. You know, that, that felt odd to me. I didn't like it, but on the other hand, I was glad it wasn't under private ownership, which would have completely excluded us. You know, so I was grateful that hopefully that they would, you know, protect it. You know, it depends on the administration and, you know, who's in control, right? You know, when Superintendent Kinkle said, you don't have to worry about demolition while I'm here. But you're right, a new superintendent, things could change. That's right. A new shippo, yeah. things could change. A yeah. new governor, things could change. Right. That's, that's exactly right. You know, I really think that uh, all of the attention that you've been able to direct to it that's really going to help the cause. And hopefully it can transcend into something that's material, right? Um, concrete. After Clayton Lewis passed away in 1995, there was a strong debate surrounding what would become of the buildings at the Cove. Some environmentalists wanted them removed, while friends of Lewis wanted to set up a residency program in his honor for artists and writers. Due to the liability of the dilapidated homestead, the Park Service pushed for the demolition of the buildings. In response, Teresa wrote a letter to the editor of the Point Reyes Light newspaper, advocating that the indigenous history of her family at the Cove justified the protection of the buildings. Ultimately, the Park Service decided to stay the demolition, but Teresa believes it was the influence of Clayton Lewis's friends, not her appeal, that saved her family's home at the time. It's hard to value what we cannot see. Clayton Lewis was a highly visible artist who was a well-known part of the contemporary social memory of the Bay. The Bohemian community honored his life and extension, the Cove, is part of their shared history. Meanwhile, the Felix family and the long history of Coast Miwok culture that their name represents had been largely forgotten by the 1990s. 
I am on this journey and um, it seems to be something that innocently started off, you know, wanting to know what was going to be the future and fate of our family's ancestral home at Felix Cove. And out of that, you know, came connecting with cousins and relatives, sharing stories of my mom's family and upbringing on Tamales Bay. And actually, it's, it's really been a gift to connect with the Felix family descendants in a way that, that I hadn't had made opportunities to do before. My name is David Arvilla. I'm the grandson of Perfetta Felix Mitchum and grew up on the bay, Tamales Bay, along with a few other people that I have no idea that they were relatives. They never bothered to say this is cousin and this is, now it's, you know, this is, this is so-and-so. And, but then it was just people we went to visit who turned out to be family. But as a kid, I, you know, had my own 22 rifle and I'd go hunting and, you know, bring back rabbits and whatever else, a deer now and then. We always had food. We may not have liked it a whole lot, <laughs> but we had it. There was a lot of fishing, uh, a lot of deer meat. The, the elders would go poaching once, or, once a week or twice, depending on how many families were out of food. I didn't know then, but I know now that they had divided it up amongst the different families that were there. And, uh, so everybody kind of worked together at that point in time. Do you miss the old days on the bay? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the bay's a rough place to live. It, it seems nice and peaceful, but uh, when the winds come up and so forth, uh, that bay gets mean. Uncle Charles and his three sons, they were, uh, going to go out in a boat, and it was a storm, and he didn't care. He had a little runabout, you know, an outboard on it, and, and I was in the front of the boat, and they were all going to go, and my grandfather came and said, no, you, you, he's not going, and luckily, took me out of the boat. Uh, they didn't come back, which is sad. Four of our family drowned there. Uncle Charles, Bobby, Donnie, and Junior. They have a uh, park named after them, uh, Miller Park, which is on the bay itself. I didn't know that. What year was that? <laughs> How old were you at the time? Uh, little, maybe eight, somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm guessing, I don't really know. But I do remember him taking me out of the boat. And of course I raised hell because I want to go, but uh, very apparently, grandfather knew better. <laughs> yeah, that was um, Bertha's. Yeah, yep. Her Wait. husband and the th and the three boys. And her three boys. Yeah. yeah. That was that was sad. My mom said that most of the family didn't know how to swim. They crossed that bay in those rowboats, not knowing how to swim. They worked on those waters and and so it was a, a hard life you know that could take your life as well so 
I think that's why my mom always tried to make me afraid of the bay and the ocean. Do you remember why people started leaving the bay? I don't know. Uh, I remember that I think it was when 50, in the mid-50s when welfare came in. Uh, there was a lot of change at that point in time. I, I don't know if it just came in or we just found out about it and everybody started getting their checks once a month, which was nice. But then there was a lot of rules and regulations and various things that went with it that uh, I don't think the people were aware of, such as the kids, you had to, they had to go to school, they had to have the right housing, they had to have, you know, which is fine, but nobody was prepared for all that. The, the welfare lady would come around and check on all your status, you know, your house, and you know, they, they were frowning on outdoor toilets, which everybody had. Uh, well, you had to have an indoor plumbing and stuff, and uh, hey, that just wasn't possible, you know, for a lot of folks, and uh, it created problems. And then, of course, that was the rules, and that was the law, and they, they bring that into effect. And but that was a big thing, uh, as I recall, uh, being afraid of uh, basically the government. Uh, telling you what to do. The money was fine, but the problems that came with it were kind of astronomical as far as the poor folks. The federal welfare of the 1950s feels like an extension of the long-standing colonial institutions that exerted their control over indigenous peoples, justifying their actions by claiming that they were improving their lives. When the Spanish missionaries arrived in 1769, they did not see the coast Miwok as a civilization filled with doctors, scientists, craftsmen, and philosophers. Instead, they viewed them as impoverished, immoral pagans that they could convert into Christians and one day into tax-paying Spanish citizens. By erasing coast Miwok culture and society, they aimed to create a replica of Spain in California and provide the upper class of Spanish landowners with an indigenous peasant workforce. The state-mandated history of the missions that I learned in fourth grade was devoid of an indigenous perspective and focused instead on the political structure and architecture of the missions, along with oversimplified tellings of the impacts they had on indigenous people. We learned that the mission padres brought both Christianity and disease and that the Coast Miwok people either lost their culture or died as a result. Once again, these were mainstream Western narratives that situated indigenous people decisively in the past. The full story is, of course, much more complicated. Through the missions, the Coast Miwok people endured enslavement, indoctrination, disease, imposed malnutrition, and destruction of native food systems. These circumstances resulted in the death of approximately 75% of the Coast Miwok community. The missions were also places where Coast Miwok people fought to maintain their agency and create indigenous space. They adapted and maintained their cultural connections, continuing to speak their language and practice ceremony 
while also attending mass and becoming farmers and carpenters. The missions attempted to convert them into the impoverished and dependent peoples they believed them to be, but in this, they failed. Those that survived navigated their way home to their ancestral lands after the secularization of the missions by Mexico in 1833. As a Spanish speaker, Teresa's great-great-grandmother, Euphrasia Felix, likely had contact with Mission Dolores before leaving San Francisco for Tamales Bay. Finding safety and sovereignty on the cove, the Felix family navigated the brief Mexican occupation of California and then the American rule of California by staying close to the land. They continued to fish, clam, hunt, and self-identify as Indians of Tamales Bay, even at a time when doing so ensured discrimination and increased their chances of being killed. All the while, the growing community on the bay most often viewed them as poor people who needed to better their lives. Yeah, and I don't know if I can pull it up. Another thing that I found quite a while ago was, because um, I've been looking in to see what the newspapers are saying, and uh, and one was about the superintendent of schools. Here it is. This was 1916. County superintendent of schools, James B. Davidson, and probation officer Thomas O'Connor expressed concern about, quote, school conditions, unquote, along the Tamales Bay, noting that up to 70 children, quote, do not receive proper educational advantages, unquote, because of distances to school and lack of interest within the families. And the quote continues, and this is reported in the Marin Journal, and I considered that it's, part, it's editorialized to some extent. Most of the children are of a mixed race, most of them supposed to have Indian blood mixed with Portuguese and other races. The parents are fishermen and their manner of living is not up to decent standard. And so they, that was the end of the quote. They were looking to the federal government, which would provide $9 per quarter for the Indian kids. And they, says, they say one difficulty is that there is no road along the west side of the bay and that about the only way a school can be provided for these children is to either build a school on the bay shore and have the children taken to and from the school in boats or put them in some other school at no little expense. And they considered that the best education would be, quote, industrial training where they can be taught how to live properly and to be able to earn a living. That was... <laughs> That was basically the, the attitude. The ranch hands, the, yeah. Yeah. domestic workers. Yeah. The boys okay. become ranch hands and the girls become domestic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's, that's the officials of the school system mm -hmm. saying that. Wow. Well, that's a good place to... <laughs> yeah, well, it's just really interesting to tap back into the thinking of the time and of the people that held power, too. Right, and then we have the real-life impact of what that meant, meaning uncles as little boys being removed from the home. So, and people, I try to get people to think about that. What if someone just came in your house and took your children and said, your, your, your grandchildren aren't getting what they should have, so we're taking them, and you don't have any option, recourse. 
I am an empathetic person and a sensitive person. So the memories and the emotions that my mom had for her family and life at the Cove, I picked up. And so when I look at pictures of Uncle Vic and I think about him as a little boy growing up at the Cove and helping the blind aunt, Auntie Tia, who passed shortly after my mom was born in 1925. I think of that little boy. I think of his relationship with Auntie Tia. I think about him helping her manage. And then someone comes and says, no, this little boy needs to go to school. And my mom, in the interview with Dewey Livingston, said that my Uncle Vic didn't want to leave Auntie Tia. But he was forced to go and he was sent to a boy's school. So that tearing apart of this little boy from his Auntie Tia, like a grandma, that pulls at my heart. And then to know the story of this little boy growing up and becoming a man and coming back and knowing the cove and the house as his home and then being served papers, eviction papers, and fighting it, that fires me up. And the love for my mom, and I know the love that she had for her extended family, and that the connections of the extended family to each other was lost with my mom's generation as they passed. So when I think about that and I think about wanting to get recognition for the Felix family at Laird's Landing, which we're calling Felix Cove, I see it as the continuation of my uncle's work. I see it picking up his work. I see it as a way of healing the family. I see it as a way of reconnecting and reestablishing the family connection to their ancestral homelands. And I see it as a means to remove any shame from being Indian at Tamales Bay. Yeah, I really feel for what Victor must have gone through and just how much was stacked against him his whole life. Yeah, I mean, it's literally, the eviction was like, again, tearing him away from what he loved. And by extension, tearing our family away from what they loved and what they knew as home. After California became the 31st state in 1850, one of the first acts of Governor Peter Hardiman Burnett was to sign into law the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. It was nicknamed the Indian Indenture Act and legally facilitated the removal and displacement of indigenous Californians from their lands and the separation of children and adults from their families, languages, and cultures. In Governor Burnett's first State of the State address, he said, 
that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. Governor Burnett's racist policies were not limited to California. Nationwide, policies and programs like the residential Indian boarding schools had the stated goal to civilize the next generation of Native Americans. As the Carlisle Indian School Superintendent Richard H. Pratt famously said, kill the Indian and save the man. Government and school officials viewed indigenous elders and their cultural influence on youth as a primary barrier to progress, civilization, and assimilation into white culture. Numerous generations of Native American children were stolen from their families in an attempt to strip them of their culture and heritage. Official policies allowing the removal of indigenous children from their families persisted until at least 1978, but indigenous children continue to remain at incredibly high risk of family separation. It seems like within the Marin historical record, there has been a lot left out. What is at risk if that truth isn't made part of the story moving forward? There was a separation, and so the stories um, of the Coast Miwok descendants weren't being told to the white historians, or the white historians weren't seeking them out, is probably more of that. I think that in general the Marin historians world didn't go over into a lot of other areas and families and, and, and people, and that that's something that can be changed and I think is changing these days. I think, I, think uh, uh, I know I'm, I've always been open to all of this, but I'm now, you know, working on, on it, of trying to, I can't say of right some wrongs, I don't know that I can right any wrongs, but, but to um, expand the stories that I'm able and willing to tell um, to be more inclusive and to, and to not have that feeling of, well, the Coast Miwok were here and then the Mexicans and Spanish and, or, you know, and, and, and settlers came and that was the end of the story. That, that's the most important lesson I've learned. I always knew that wasn't the end of the story, but that, that's how it's still always written down, the book I wrote about Nicasio. That was basically it. It had its first chapter, and then you go on. And so there's a lot of opportunity for learning and changing the way you tell history. So does that mean that how you're writing this new book, your approach has changed? Will change. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's changing. I'm I'm learning a lot from this book. We are the land. I've been reading Sim Schneider's work, and I've been corresponding with him too. We've corresponded for quite a quite a few years. But um, even terminology, I'm I'm avoiding using the word Indian, um, and just making sure and, and and incorporating the story from Merriam and. I think the way that I'm writing it and the fact that I'm going to have more people review it is the biggest change. Yeah, I, I, you know, um, I'm glad to hear that and, and I think it really is to everyone's benefit to have a more integrated stories.
because when you look at the park's information, it's just like what you described, the Coast Miwok were there to greet Drake, and then, you know, there's some that worked on the ranches, but you don't get the vibrancy and how fluid uh, everyone was and how they talked with each other, worked with each other, lived with each other. Went to school. Went to with school each with each other, right. There wasn't anything so static of, you know, Native people on this side and the white ranchers on that side. They definitely crossed paths with each other and school, school was their first crossing, mm -hmm. first interaction. Yeah. On the East Shore, the Marshall School, um, the, it was a fairly big school and the majority of um, students there were from the Coast Miwok families. So that part's missing and I, I think that, you know, everyone benefits from knowing th that there isn't anything to fear, really. Um, that, you know, that is part of the, the history, the true history of Tamales Bay. Yeah, that's what feels like the opportunity is to just find ways to share and reintegrate all of these stories so that we can try and understand the power dynamics that were at play. You know, if you were going to be, in what might have been somebody's perspective, as an overt indigenous person, well, there was no place for you. Mm -hmm. You had to hide. That's the message. Right, empty away, be quiet. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's this fulfilling prophecy of erasure there. Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, my mom and my grandmother and aunts, and probably my uncles too, they all spoke Spanish and English um, because the missions were here. So that their Tamal language wasn't what they spoke, though some folks I'm told did speak it, but I didn't. It was, you know, Spanish that I heard. You know, I, I feel sadness when I meet Native people, but they don't know much about their culture other than what they may see in a Disney film about Pocahontas. And they're attracted to that because it's she's beautiful in their portrayal. And that was me too, you know. I was Indian, but we didn't know what type. There's so many different pueblos in New Mexico. But my mom knew she was Tamales Bay Indian. That was solid. She knew she was Indian. She knew she was raising an Indian child. So I was grounded through her. And then later through life, I learned about my traditions from my family in New Mexico. You know, we have our own destiny, our own individual um, abilities to make decisions. And it's not always being Indian. <laughs> like the children's book, it sounds like. Because some of my mom's generation, it was easier to be Swiss Italian than being Indian. Because then you don't get all that negativity. You don't get all that judgment, bias, that racism directed at you. So is that part of the erasure? And it's certainly understandable. And I wouldn't make judgment on anyone's decisions of how they express themselves or how what their connections or their relationships are to their nativeness. And that's why I'm not ashamed or afraid or hesitant 
to be fully honest that I don't know much about plants or know about how to row across the bay or know how to dig for clams, get abalone. There's no shame here for me about not knowing that. But I do have individual agency to learn it, immerse myself, and ask people to show me. So that's not part of the erasure. So the erasure of Coast Miwok history at Point Reyes National Seashore or anywhere, anywhere in the world, makes it easy to claim land, makes it easy to exploit natural resources. The erasure absolves people of any obligation of knowing, absolves people from any responsibility absolves knowing more about their own history. But what can't be predicted is that someone like me is going to step forward and say that is not the history. There's more to the history. What can't be predicted is that Native youth grow up and become professors of history and write books about California Indian history. What can't be predicted is that these same children are going to grow up and become producers, movie directors. So the stories of Native people are going to come out, the histories of Native people are going to come out, It's a continuation of a line of people who saw the importance and wrote about it. Non-natives, you know, first writing about what was happening. There's always going to be someone who's going to want to tell the story or remember. Be a pain in the ass to someone. So the erasure of the history, it's only temporary. In 1976, the local paper, The Point Reyes Light, ran a story about the Felix family's eviction from the cove. It was entitled, Indian Loses Ancestral Home, A Miwok's Plight in the White Man's World. It included stories from Teresa's cousin, Virginia Jensen, and aunt, Elaine Posey Bruett, who recalled a time when the social memory of the West Marin community still included the Coast Miwok families. Elaine, who grew up in the 20s and 30s, recounts teaching her classmates how to clam and is quoted saying, All the ranchers were Irish. We were the only Indians around. They would come to us for advice about living with nature. The article reports that the state laws requiring licensing for fishing and clamming put Coast Miwoks, who made a living in the bay, out of business, and many moved away. But before that happened, the two say, it was difficult to find a Coast Miwok who was not self-sufficient. 
the licensing laws were just one of the ways that the social and cultural tide had turned against Coast Miwok families. Victor's eviction represented the ways in which the white community was undergoing a comprehensive process of forgetting and dismissing Coast Miwok history and ongoing presence in the Bay. The article describes Victor as standing as a symbol to all that was lost and ends like this. When he died 10 years ago, the county recorded his ancestry as white. His death certificate listed him as transient. Thus, the official record labeled him homeless and erased Victor's identity as an indigenous man who had fought for the right to live on his ancestral land. so much I didn't know before. And then really spending time looking at the photographs and talking with relatives. I feel like I've learned just a little bit more, but there's so much more to learn. And then some of it just is gone because people are gone. I think that because the family was evicted, that overshadowed. Uh, a lot about how they felt about here. But I, I have to take it back to the time when I brought my mom out to Kuliloklo and she got to meet Lanny Panola out at the roundhouse. And she loved it. And it was like seeing a burden lifted off of her because the negativity, the prejudices of being Tamales Bay Indian was lifted and she got to see and experience a side in which Native history and culture and Native identity was celebrated and recognized. And I think that she would be happy to see the house as it is now, as, as same as my aunts and my uncles. And that's who I talk to and who I pray to, you know, to guide us and provide us strength and tell us through some dreams, share a memory or help me remember or help us find something that will help us know more about life here. Everything is personal and that Actions that took place in the 16th century are still in effect. So that's why when I talked to Superintendent Kinkle about the possibility of a living history center, that's why I want the what if included. The what if the chaos, the destruction, the disease, the violence, the genocide, the replacement of indigenous languages with Spanish language, English language. What if that didn't occur? What would that cove look like? And to me, I get a vision of beauty. I get a vision of a healthy, happy family, of parents able to nurture their children, teach them about traditional practices 
We wouldn't even have that word traditional. It would be just how we live. And it would be a place of beauty, of healthy existence, healthy environment. And it would be a place in which we share how we live with the natural world for everyone, not just for Native people, but for everyone, because we're in a climate crisis. We have fires, floods, rising oceans. All of that is because the natural world was looked at and continues to be looked at as a source to be harvested or plants sown for profit, for production, commercial ranching, all of that with the methane gas and the carbon, all of it is contributing. So if we want a future, we have to come back and learn about how to properly live and manage the natural resources. And I do not make any separation with the people and the natural resources. You have to bring back the people's history. You have to bring back the people's knowledge. And that's for the future of all of us, Native, non-Native. That's for the future of humanity. If we want to continue to live on a planet that's habitable. Because right now, we have to stay inside because the air is not healthy to breathe or people losing their homes or animals due to fire or flood. It, it, it's amazing that people cannot see that we're still on this road to destruction. For me, if I could be successful, Felix Cove, Marshall Beach would be symbolic of how we can learn to live and where we see ourselves as part of nature. So that it's not where you just come here and recreate and do whatever you do, and then you go back to your normal life. No, it's where you come here, you can learn about how you coexist and live, and you take that back to where you live. That's the potential that exists out at Felix Cove. That's the vision I have. And so all of this work that I'm doing is built on alliances. I cannot be a genealogist, archeologist, anthropologist, historian, environmentalist, a traditional ecological knowledge practitioner. And so I depend on people who can step forward and offer themselves to be allies to me and my family. And that's why now is the time for creating the Alliance for Felix Cove and to host family and friends gatherings, to hopefully host a row across the bay, to give a public presence to the family, to the family history in the house, so that when people come across the cove, they can find information about the family.
It's unfortunate that I have to read in books about Tamal Huye and how I have to even learn that word, that it didn't come from my family speaking Tamal. But there's a reason for it, Spanish missions. There's no shame in that. When you push people to the edges of their land, you poison the animals that they would use for food, for clothing, you out-hunt, you destroy the edible plants, you break up the living systems so they're, they're no longer living in villages, but they're now living as individual families trying to just survive, find work, feed their families. There's no longer the relationships of, you know, the healers, the medicine people, the doctors, in the way that they would have done thousands of years ago. It'll come back. I'm not a fatalist. All of that comes back. It's still there. That part is the unpredictableness of the people or the entities or the structures that wanted the erasure. That's going to be the surprise, is that it's coming back. It's just a matter of time. If you could share one thought with somebody that's never been here about this place, what do you think that would be? I can show you a place that's been continuously lived in for over 10,000 years. There isn't too many places like this anywhere in California where the native people lived continuously all the way into what they weren't supposed to see, which was modern times. And they had a good life here. This series is directed, narrated, and edited by Adam Lofton. It is produced by Adam Lofton and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger, H. Scott Salinas, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix by Matthew Mickelson. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. Our original essays, films, interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org. <laughs>